This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department no longer has a chief management officer, but it still needs a solid dose of management. That came to light in a recent hearing for the Biden administration's nominee for DOD comptroller, Michael McCord. For more on this and other recent developments, we turn to Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni. Scott, we'll start with you. There was a hearing for Mr. McCord, and he was talking about how the ideas and the functions of the former CMO office, which, as you report, Congress eliminated, would come into his job if he is confirmed as comptroller. How, how does that all work? And what was he talking about there? Right. Well, I think the Biden administration right now is trying to figure that out. The Trump administration was trying to sew everything up before they left, uh, but really didn't get it completely finished. They had uh, Deputy Defense Secretary David Norquist push out some of the old responsibilities of the CMO to the cost assessment and program evaluation director, to the comptroller, also within the deputy defense secretary role as well. So Right now, Michael McCord is saying that if he is confirmed, one of his earliest tasks will be to sit down with the deputy defense secretary, who is now Kathleen Hicks, to really figure out how they're going to push all these things out to different people. The chief information officer being one of the other ones that will get that. Michael McCord was saying that in the past, DOD maybe was overdoing how they were trying to uh, create efficiency and they were trying to cut billets, cut workforce. He said that they need to focus more on outcomes and effectiveness. So if it stays with, if those responsibilities stay within his comptroller position, he'd like a different kind of workforce than just having financial auditors and finance people, but people who are focused on business process and business practices to ensure that the management is working the best way that it can for the Defense Department. Well, it's unlikely they're going to get any kind of big management related fourth estate related spending increases. We don't know exactly what Biden will propose, but that new budget's coming out any day now. And it's unlikely they're going to have a lot of fat to spend at Pentagon structures, isn't it? Right. Well, they're keeping the Defense Department budget pretty flat. There's a slight 1.5 percent increase over last year that really just takes care of inflation for the most part. So the fourth estate has had a a target on its back for a couple of years now from Congress, especially and from uh, some top ranking Republicans. So it's it's very unlikely that the, the fourth estate will be growing. However, they may find some different ways to move things around. They're working differently with data, which may help with efficiency and things like that. So we'll really just have to see how they might shoehorn this into uh, making a more efficient defense department. And Jared Serbu, speaking of management and spending controls, the Defense Finance and Accounting Service was caught by the inspector general on an odd area of improper payments, which shows that there is some kind of management office needed or management anyway. Tell us about that one. To set the stage for this, we really have to go back to November when when we reported and we probably talked about at the time the fact that, for example, in the civilian workforce area, the department reported on its annual financial reports that it had an estimated $5 billion in improper payments out to those civilian payrolls while also saying they didn't know how much was overpayments and didn't know how much was underpayments. And it was a huge increase from the prior year that took it to about 8% of those civilian payments they estimated were improper, way up from 0.14% in 2019. The update to this story is that number may be completely inaccurate because, as you just alluded to, 
it's it's based on a testing methodology at the Defense Finance and Accounting Service that, according to DOD's Inspector General, is completely unreliable. They basically used garbage data and it, well turned it into garbage data in the way that they were manipulating it in order to arrive those estimates. So that $5 billion estimate that we talked about is completely unreliable. Similar unreliable estimates in the areas of military pay. We do know there are improper payments in DOD, but these uh, testing methodologies just tell us that uh, we don't know the, the scale or scope of the problem. And it's it's certainly you know a complication on DOD's long path toward getting its financial house in order. Is the implication that the number of improper payments to civilian employees greater than that $5 billion or somewhat a fraction of it? Logic would seem to to tell you that it's probably a lot less than five billion because that it was a like we said at the at the beginning there it was a huge jump from 2019. So the fact that it jumped that much after those new testing uh, testing methods were introduced is a pretty big red flag in and of itself. So if I had to guess, I would say it's probably less than five billion. But we will hopefully have a better estimate by 2021 because. DFAS has promised to fix these uh, methodology problems that the inspector general pointed out, and hopefully they'll have a, a method that gives them a little more confidence in the numbers next year. You know, in 45 years of working, I've never had an employer accidentally overpay me. The question is, how does this happen at all? Isn't payroll the most cut and dried thing that they do pay out? You would think, but DFAS is a payroll provider for an awful lot of agencies. Some of them outside of the Defense Department relies on a lot of legacy feeder systems, probably not paper. I was about to say paper, but but in, in any case, very old systems kind of tied together uh, that, that were not really ever designed to be auditable to modern standards. So again, the problem could be very small, as, as they reported in 2019, or it could be more than that. Um, the reason they updated the testing methodologies in the first place is because they didn't have a lot of confidence in the ones that they had been using before. So hopefully we <laughs> neck down into something in 2021 that everybody feels feels proper about. I should mention another problem in the improper payments arena that caused those civilian payroll amounts to be off by so much or or off by some unknown amount is they completely left out DOD's civilian mariner workforce from the civilian accounts. And that's $538 million all by itself. That's despite the fact that IG report previously in 2018 pointed out that exact problem to DFAS and it just never got corrected. And is there any talk of if they were to discover what the payments actually were, the overpayments, people would have to give money back? Yeah, that that is part of the federal law. They are supposed to come up with a remediation plan to go to pay and chase, basically, to chase down any of those overpayments and, and make people whole if they were underpaid. Got it. So if you bought that bass boat with your overpayments, you better be prepared to sell it or drag it to the Pentagon. You got it. All right. And Scott, vaccination is task one here. The White House just yesterday gave a major update on vaccination plans. For service members, there's some issues. That's right. Well, since the beginning, back in December of the vaccine vaccine rollout, we've been hearing some rumblings of skepticism within the military of uh, service members who were really, really not interested in getting the vaccine or were just concerned about the effects of the vaccine. Uh, right now, we've had 27% of military personnel fully vaccinated. However, a lot of lawmakers are worried that this issue of of skepticism is a readiness issue. And the acting assistant secretary of defense for health affairs has said they're really having trouble getting people to take this vaccine. In fact, she said during a hearing last week that she never thought she'd have to say these words, but you know, they, there might be a consideration of 
the Biden administration having to mandate that people get this vaccine, even after a year of being locked down and having to deal with all of these issues. So uh, what they're doing is using every possible avenue to encourage and engage service members to uh, accept the vaccination. Now, at this point, DOD is not planning on making anything mandatory. So, you know, don't don't take it as that. But it's just something that really was surprising to her during that that hearing and something that she kind of brought up that even the thought of this is so far fetched. DOD's done multiple town halls with senior leaders to explain the effectiveness, everything you can think of in, in that sort of front. And, you know, just as a, a reminder, the reason that these service members are not mandated, mandated to get the shot is because it's only approved through emergency authorization. And that means that it hasn't really gotten the full treatment from the FDA. And, and that may be why there is some skepticism. However, most of the science points to everything being pretty much sure. copacetic. DOD has said in the past that about one third of service members have been declining to take that vaccine. Do we know anything about the service members' spouses? Is that number available at all? Uh, It's not necessarily available. We've seen some surveys from uh, organizations like Blue Star Families, and that skepticism seems to be all around the defense communities, not only within the service members, but with their families and even some, uh, you know, contractors and people like that as well. Federal News Network Scott Mascioni and Jared Serbu, thanks so much. Check out their latest DOD Reporter's Notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt. uh, But I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here. And we're moving forward. Perfect. 
throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments. And I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at the time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. 
And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.